0: You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime.
1: felt that a good story is a good story regardless of the format in which it's told. She being an artist and I a writer, we've always loved animated films to the point of watching them without the kids on occasion. That said, having kids opened up a wealth of film and TV shows which we may not have otherwise thought to enjoy. This is how we came to discover Hayao Miyazaki by way of Kiki's Delivery Service, a film we rented for our girls thinking they would enjoy watching this young witch zipping around town on a broom only to discover an incredibly deep and mature story which adults could enjoy as well. There was something entirely unique about watching that film for the first time, or rather being exposed to Miyazaki for the first time. Much like watching The Secret of Nim* for the first time, you're struck by the sheer weight of a story which you'd not thought possible for a medium for that age group, as it is primarily aimed at children. Anyone who's watched classic Looney Tunes will quickly point out that a great many animated shows have elements for adults, especially before the censors get a hold of them. However, these are eclipsed by the depth and breadth of emotion which Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli brings to all of their films, from Totoro to Howl's Moving Castle, Nausicaa to Princess Mononoke. Now, I say Nausicaa, which was in fact written and directed by Miyazaki based on manga which Miyazaki wrote. However, the film was produced by Topcraft, not Studio Ghibli. Ghibli had not yet been formed. It was Nausicaa which prompted Miyazaki, Haseo Takahata, and Toshio Suzuki to form Studio Ghibli in June of 1985. Tonight, Vince and I are going to tackle two Studio Ghibli films, each of us having had the opportunity to choose one film. I chose Spirited Away, which became the highest grossing film in Japan. It won numerous awards, including an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature at the 75th Academy Awards. Now, you may think this is an easy or obvious choice. However, I didn't choose it because of this, but rather because of how impactful it was for us, the first time watching it, knowing nothing of its success in Japan. Now, Vince chose Grave of the Fireflies, an earlier Studio Ghibli film, which is often overlooked by viewers, in part because of the crushing weight of its story, also because it's one of the few Studio Ghibli films not directed by Miyazaki, but rather Takahata. I think it's ironic that Takahata did Fireflies, but also on the opposite end of the emotional spectrum, My Neighbors, the Yamadas. It speaks to his versatility as a writer-director. So
0: we're going to start with Grave of the Fireflies. What made you go with this film? Well, the main reason that I chose it is, like you said, because it was one. It's one of the few non Miyazaki films that they've put out.
1: Yeah, he's done, like we said, the the My Neighbors, and he also has a one that's going to be coming out soon. Actually, the Tale of Princess Kaguya mm-hmm. has that actually released yet? No, no. Very soon though. It's actually saying in November of this year. I don't know if it's been pushed back. And he also did Only Yesterday, which is actually. That sounds familiar, but I don't think I've seen that.
0: He also did uh, Palm Poco, which is a great one. Yes, he did. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Very, very like nature themed, and it's it's a bunch of tanukis, and it's hilarious. But it, 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 like a lot of Ghibli films, it does have a lot of uh, meaning and weight to it. And actually, Miyazaki himself has attributed a lot of that to Takahata, where you know, he's always said. Because uh, amongst the two of them, Miyazaki's the artist, you know, he's the writer, he's the animator, he, he embodies, you know, that side of their storytelling, whereas Takahata comes in more, more as the director type, you know, the, the, the big picture, you know, he has no background actually in, you know, training and animation and all that. But Miyazaki has said that Takahata brings a certain weight and, you know, depth and focus to their filmmaking That Miyazaki didn't have. Like he said, if it wasn't for him, basically he'd just be doing like, you know, anime superhero stuff the whole time. (laughs) But working with Takahata has grounded him. And you can see, you know, over the years, a lot of the Miyazaki films have had just as much emotional impact as well as, you know, real world metaphor as, you know, Grave of the Fireflies did. Well, when you look at Yamada's, which we watched,
1: and when you first started off, well, A, the art in it is very different than what you're used to for a Miyazaki film, which is saying a lot because the style for Miyazaki is very unique as well. But this was completely different, but it's so bloody cool. But then it starts and you realize it's just vignettes of this family. And for the first couple, you're like, it's, it's an odd experience. And you're thinking, okay, well, I kind of sat down with the thinking this was going to be a feature film and And it kind of is a little jarring. But then in No Time Flat, you are so invested in this family and their little adventures. And by the end, you're really wishing that there had been
0: more of these vignettes. It's so well done. Mm -hmm. So bringing it back around to uh, Grave of Fireflies, when I first started getting into anime, and this is knowing anime, like we said last time around, I watched a lot of it when I was a kid without knowing it was anything all that different. But once I started getting exposed to, you know, actual unedited anime back in like the early 90s or so, a lot of it had the same feeling. It was all, you know, the big action, lots of blood, lots of other interesting things that were very uh, important to a teenage boy. (laughs) But it it had a lot of the same feel to it. Like it was – it didn't have a lot of substance. But I – especially back then, there wasn't a whole lot – to be found because it hadn't grown that much of a a popular conscience in America. So there was basically the same titles that were just in regular circulation, but there was this big library of all the Ghibli stuff because ever since going back to, uh, God, what was it? I think it was Totoro or even maybe even before that they had a, a licensing deal with Disney and all of the Ghibli films Except for Grave of the Fireflies were distributed by Ghibli uh, because Grave of the Fireflies had a different licensing deal through the uh, publisher of the book that it was based on. But once I started getting into it, I started watching all the Ghibli stuff because, well, it was like the last stuff on the shelf I hadn't seen. But I was like, oh, it's just magical girls. And I was like, I didn't want to watch it, but I watched it anyway. And I, it opened me up to the larger breadth of what the genre has to offer. And yeah, a lot of it wasn't all that interesting to me at the time. Like, I can look back at it now and appreciate it more. But eventually I got around to watching Grave of the Fireflies and was absolutely crushed watching this movie. Uh, it came out in 1988. And it's actually interesting because it was in production at the same time as My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, actually... While everybody really liked what Miyazaki had going on with Totoro, there weren't all that many people willing to put their money behind it. So when uh, they got the license to Grave of the Fireflies, that allowed them to basically budget the two movies as a double billing. And they actually released the two movies together (laughs) in theaters. (laughs) And
1: many children
0: cried their way out of the
1: theater that night.
0: This fun family movie and Grave of the Fireflies, this depressing wartime story did not go too well together that's why it as well received as totoro was it was not really a financial success for many years to come just because people didn't want to take their kids to go see the
1: thing yeah
0: the grave is grave of fireflies is just
1: again it's harsh it's just so freaking it, it will crush your soul <laughs> it's just you know what's coming you because it tells you right off the bat it's just you know if it was if it was real live actors which they've made real live films of adapt- adaptations of it I'd like to see those if I could stand it but I'd say it's well acted just because it's so well animated and the voices are so well done that it's just again it's just crushing <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Grave of Fireflies is based off a book by Akiyuki Nosaka. And as he says, it's actually semi-autobiographical. Um, I'll come back around to it later on. But a lot of the events portrayed in the film and in the book were experienced by Nosaka himself. And as such, he was very protective of the story. Multiple studios approached him over the years wanting to make a movie out of it because you know it, it was a very popular book. And every time he turned it down, he considered the book to be, by his standards at least, unfilmable for two primary reasons. First of all, he didn't see any enough depth in the uh, child actors in the Japanese system at the time to feel that they would be able to portray his characters properly, as well as the fact that given special effects and budgets and everything, he didn't think any studio could really capture the feel and the look of it properly. That was until Takahata approached him about doing it animated, which was something he had never even previously considered. And one of the things that really sold this, and this was very groundbreaking at the time, was if you look, almost all of the line work in Grave of the Fireflies is actually done in brown ink instead of the usual black. And the reason they use black so much is because it. It's a very strong contrast. You use the black lines, it makes the colors stand out that much better. Using brown instead, even if you use the same exact color with a brown line instead of a black line, the entire movie is very muted. And since the entire backdrop of the film is this burnt-down, war-torn region in Japan, it's very effective. You know what? I hadn't
1: even noticed it, but now that you say it, yeah, that's true. It is. It's, it, again, it struck me as well how you you can see the same style within reason the same studio ghibli style but it is still different enough that it's it's very noticeable and it's things like that and the coloring or whatnot now that being said too, what i attributed to it to was more that it was one of the few first films that they'd done as well because mm-hmm. this is actually the second one the ghibli put out well if you don't count tutorial so i figured that it was again a style that they were working towards kind of thing but it's interesting to hear that
0: I say if you consider that both films were in production at the same time, and both films actually used most of the same animation staff, compare the look of this to the look of Totoro, yeah. and it's a very striking difference. And you can't even put a lot of it down to style. Of course, you know you have Miyazaki's more fantastical influence, but as far as just the look and feel of the movie, not necessarily the character designs, it's very striking. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So the movie itself takes place in the Kobe region of Japan in 1945 at the tail end of World War II. And when it starts off, we're treated with the uh, main character, Seta, a 14-year-old boy, and his sister, Setsuko, a four-year-old girl, as they're trying to evacuate their house because the Americans are coming in their planes to bomb their town. Uh, Their mother goes ahead. uh, As they say, she has a heart condition. So Seta takes it upon himself to – Basically shore up the house, make sure everything's okay, and get his sister to safety. Unfortunately, before they can make it to the shelter, the bombs start dropping. And these are not explosive bombs. These are actually fire bombs with oil. And it's it was rough to watch even that scene before things started getting bad because the entire town just burns to the ground. It's gone. And this whole first sequence of the movie, you see... Everything Sada's going through to protect himself and protect his sister, and it just the she, the sheer terror of I can't even imagine being in a situation that myself that myself now, let alone as a fourteen year old. It was whew, it was hard right right off the bat. It's funny because when we were watching it, it's you know what's happening.
1: Because, again, we're we're older watching it, so we know the history and things like that. So you know what's coming. And so when they're talking about these air raids and you've seen the planes coming and whatnot, there's that sense of dread immediately. You're watching this and you're expecting, you know, this is, this is going to be bad. There's going to be bombs dropping. There's going to be buildings exploding. There's going to be people with bits flying all over the kind of thing. And... Then you see only these incendiary bombs dropping, but they don't they don't look like they're that dangerous when you see them, and mm-hmm. they're just landing and you see a few fires and all that and then you you think about how cities were built back then and especially in Japan, and a lot of wood and things like that and then before you've had the time to clue in on this, all of a sudden, fire's engulfing everything, and you realize that they didn't need real bombs to level these cities just throwing a pack of matches is going to take this place down and sure enough it's that devastating
0: mm-hmm. and even more I, if you look at it somewhat objectively you know if you're in a bomb attack you know a building falls on you and an explosive goes off nearby at least <sighs> it's kind of hard to put into words but you know at least it's going to be quick burning is not something, like, it's just one of those primal fears that everybody has. And the thought of being caught in this blaze, you know, covered in oil, it, it, oh, it, it's very difficult. And, of course, the movie approaches this by showing their mom wrapped in bandages and practically burnt to a crisp. Thanks for that one, guys. That
1: was brutal. That was just, I, again, you're watching an animated film. So you think there's going to be some things that they'll... Sugar coat within reason? No. No.
0: Not even close. Yeah. So, when their mother dies, uh, Seda and Setsuko actually go to live with uh, their aunt in next town over. It's uh, his father's sister. And at first, the aunt is very happy to take them in because their father is in the Navy. So, they are getting a pretty reasonable amount of food rations. And with the ants taking them in, she's very happy. She's getting extra food in the house. You know, they bring over what they were able to stockpile from their old house. Everybody's happy. Everybody's getting along until Seda tells her that their mother actually died. He was hiding it because he didn't know how to tell his sister. And it was very well handled in that one scene. I said, "This is the '80s animation quality." Isn't what we've come to expect today? But you can see the facial animations and, you know, of course, the musical score contributes as well. The exact instant the aunt finds out that their mother isn't coming back. These kids are now her responsibility or as she sees it, her burden now. It's a complete change in her character. And looking at it now, I was like, okay, that's great. But again, taking it into the context of where animation itself was as an art form at the time it was very well handled yeah it was
1: you although you really do see it early enough to she's they she's she's almost like the villain just not too villainous kind of thing but mm-hmm. like you see it early on where she's given them a hard time and especially Seda and giving them a hard time meanwhile like he's raising his sister the answer as is, hell isn't doing anything about it. So that's why he's not going out and getting a job or trying to do anything with the, the military and all that. But she's hassling him. And then when it gets to that
0: point that you're talking about, it just goes from bad to worse. Yeah. I just want to reach in and slap her. And <laughs> yeah, there is definitely an unfairness in the way they were treated because uh, their aunt had her daughter as well as, uh, I can't even think of the right word to use, basically a guy that was living there. Uh, a boarder, a lodger, I think is what they refer to it in the the film. And they're sitting down at dinner. And like I said, most of their dinner is from Seda and Setsuko and their father's rations. Whereas when she's dishing it out, they're basically getting broth and the odd noodle here and there. Whereas everybody else at the table is getting the pork, getting the eggs, getting the vegetables, getting everything they need for proper nutrition. Like when I first saw that scene, I was... I was just staring, and I was like, "You bitch! (laughs) How could you do that? I mean, to a four-year-old girl? Oh my god!"
1: Yeah, yeah. Like when she's she's giving Seda a hard time, it's not that you can you agree with a kind of thing. But you can understand, okay? this is where she's come from and she wants to teach him a lesson that he has to be more responsible. And this thing that she's saying, you have to earn your food and whatnot, even though it's his food, Um, especially because she's made him sell off the uh, or she sold off his mother's kimonos to be able to buy white rice as well. But but to hold it from the child as well is like, where's
0: the rationale there? Now you're just being a bitch. (laughs) And we're talking so much about all these terrible scenes in the movie and all this stuff that's happening. But those scenes would not be nearly as striking without the balance. And throughout the film, we get a number of fantastic scenes of Seda and Setsuko together. And in this horrible life, Seda is basically doing everything he can just to give Setsuko some bit of a normal upbringing you know taking her to the beach letting her play giving her candies and it's really those moments that make you fall in love with these characters and it makes it that much harder when the bad things happen to them well it's setting
1: you up it's basically telling you you know no no really don't don't worry you can dance on that rug i'm not going to pull it out from under you trust me on this one not at all and so you're getting these moments where you're feeling that love that they have for each other and that sense of responsibility, which Seda has, which I mean, again, he's 14 years old, has lost his mother is at, at one point, finds out as well that his father is not coming back either. So it's just him. And he never flinches from that responsibility. And, and it, it's never seen as a responsibility or as a burden. It's just, it's his sister, he loves her dearly and will care for her and it's this, you see that from the very beginning of the movie when he's strapping her onto his back so that they can go to the point of running back for her doll, even though the bombs are dropping, and all the way through to the end,
0: I've said before that whenever you see a young girl in an anime, they're just setting you up. <laughs> I learned that lesson from this movie and it it has served me well through the years that I, I don't fall for the trick anymore. How can you not? She was so cute. Yeah. I fell for it in this one and it, I learned my lesson.
1: When you but, see the flashback scenes, and we'll get to that later, but when you oh see those flashback God. scenes, it is so heartbreaking and yet so friggin' adorable. It's unbelievable.
0: Mm-hmm. So as they're with their aunt, they're not happy. They actually end up going out and buying their own stove and food so that their aunt doesn't even have to take care of them. Like, just, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in our room. We'll feed ourselves. You don't have to worry about us. Still doesn't get any better. The bombs are still dropping. And every time the bombs are dropping, you know, Seda's only concern is getting his sister to safety. Whereas the aunt is like, you know, you should be staying behind. You should be helping out the town. It's like, if you like that shelter so much, you should go live in it. My, what a fantastic idea that is. So they pack up their crap and they move into basically a cave carved into the side of a hill. And this is just a beautiful scene that they've set up with this forest and this lake and the fireflies. Of course, you know there's fireflies in the film in the in the countryside. And Setsuko loves the fireflies. They actually bring hundreds of them into the cave with them to keep it lit at night and it's a Gorgeous scenery that again, it makes you forget just how bad things are
1: yeah, that I mean it's the the scene that they needed, obviously for the to set up the the, the title and would not and the importance too of what follows the, the following morning, but it was just it, it was this little few minutes of magic in a movie that you needed because otherwise it's so crushing.
0: Mm -hmm. unfortunately as many people know fireflies have a very short lifespan so when they wake up in the morning all the fireflies are dead and here's setsuko setting up a little grave for them and burying them and this is where we realize that you know setsuko found out about their mother being dead and has just worked through it in her own way as she even for a four-year-old she she shows us an amount of maturity that you wouldn't expect and this is where you can really look at it and go I don't know how an actual child actor could have played this role. I, I don't know how I'd, I'd love to see the, the live action interpretation of this just to see how they did it. Well, also
1: to see Seda's reaction, because again, in the animated, they were really able to show him breaking down at that part because he'd been holding it all in for so long and trying to be the brave one and responsible one and everything. And when he realizes that she knows and, and, how well quote unquote well she's dealing with it and he just loses it and i'm thinking that would be an exceptionally hard scene for any actor to take on as well
0: so as they're living here in the cave sata's doing his best but you know food is not easy to come by and there's this old farmer that he keeps going to you know buying supplies off of him and whatnot and the farmer eventually tells him she's like you know you just got to swallow your pride and go back home like you cannot survive on your own right now. But he refuses to do it. And this is the point where he actually starts turning to theft, you know, stealing food from the farmers until he gets caught doing that. It's an, it was a really weird moment when instead of – early on, every time the Americans were coming by bombing, he would run to the shelter. Well, now every time yeah. the Americans are dropping bombs, he's running from the shelter going into town because he's using the chaos and the confusion to steal stuff from people that he can hope to trade for food. And it was really weird watching this, obviously, as an American, because early on and obviously throughout the entire film, the Americans are really the villains in this story. (laughs) Of course, history paints a much different picture, especially our history books. But from the point of view of these people, I mean, it was the Americans dropping fire onto their cities. So obviously they're very villainous. But as Seda starts taking up this you know, life of thievery, he actually forms an interesting bond and alliance with the American bombers. I, at one point, as he's running from the town with kimonos and who knows what else stuffed into his clothes, he's jumping up and cheering as the planes are flying overhead. And that was just, that was weird. Well, it was,
1: if you really look at, again, those facial expressions were done exceptionally well. If you really look at it, There are points, and and realizing what you're looking at, a 14-year-old who's caring for his dying sister, he himself constantly saying how hungry he is, slowly losing his mind and rushing into what he has always been taught to rush away from. And he almost has this maniacal look in his face a couple of times. And it really sets it up that once she's she dies, you can very much see that that would be the breaking point for him because it's been working that way. And so that's how I saw it. Like, had they not showed us how peaceful he was at the at the beginning of the film as a, a spirit, not that he wouldn't be, you know, that he'd be a vengeful spirit or, or anything, but... You would think that the potential is there for him just to lose it and to, again, that that blah, 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 blah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> losing it and a straitjacket on. It just looks like it's any moment he might lose it. So, it, again, it's you can see that mind is going to snap as soon as this, the, his sister is going to die. And that's only a matter of time.
0: So, spoiler alert. She dies. Well, that's the beginning of the show. You see their spirits. I'm just, I know. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) And it's again, it's one of those things where it just reaches in and rips out every fiber of emotion you have in your body. She doesn't die of an injury, she doesn't even die of an illness. The poor girl literally starves to death. Despite Seda's best efforts, she just can't get enough nutrition into her body to survive. And eventually, Seda spends the last of their money on you know, this, this huge amount of food for them because after he takes her to the doctor, the doctor's like, just, just feed the girl. That's all she needs. He brings back melons and meat and eggs and everything. And she passes away as he's cooking the meal. And it, A watermelon it was, girl. man... I will never look at watermelons the same. <laughs> I don't care. Watermelon's freaking delicious. It's gonna take a lot more than this to ruin that for me. Little piece of watermelon in her hand and just boom, she's gone.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> and,
0: and you know, that's And that's when they show the flashbacks. Oh that oh. that is what what finally did it. Like that is that's the part of the movie that absolutely pushed me over the edge because as Seda is burning Setsuko's body, they show this flashback of everything Setsuko did while Seda was away trying to get food. At which we and never her, got to see. Yeah, because the entire movie was from Seda's point of view. So now we see Setsuko cleaning you know, their their little cave and doing everything she can to help her brother out, even while she's – weak and starving and sick and falling over. Oh, my God. Well, not just that, but
1: you actually see her playing as well. Yes. That's more crushing than anything else. Oh, my God. This movie just... This movie will destroy you. (laughs) Yeah. When you're seeing, again, up until this point, you've seen Seda and everything that he has to do for them to survive. And his interactions with her, which are never really good. Because she's pretty much starving from the get-go. She has diarrhea constantly because she's got, obviously, disease and different things, malnutrition. So she can't hang on to her any kind of water or anything. And so you don't imagine that there's any moments of joy in this child's life. With the exception of the first few,
0: you know, day trips that they take kind of thing. After that, that's it.
1: But, but then, even then,
0: looking back at that trip to the beach, and you can already see the rash yeah, forming on her back. Yeah. Oh, and it yes. was, it's like, oh.
1: But then, <laughs> when you see those moments where they flash back, and it's just this brilliant montage where mm-hmm. it shows what she does. And there are those moments where she plays. And it's like the, when she's cleaning up and stuff like that, I can take that. That's, that's, but when she's playing, and you're going, oh my God,
0: oh <laughs> See, it was actually the way around for me. Where where it showed her taking care of her brother as much as he was taking care of her.
1: Uh, Either way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's that's the moment moment where you're going to lose it.
1: Yeah.
0: And this is where it comes back around. Like I said, the book was in a lot of ways autobiographical for Nosaka because he actually did live through these firebombings specifically in Kobe at the age of 14. So Seda was really him in this film, and he lost a number of members of his family. I think they said he lost uh, one sister in the attack, and one sister died, uh, you know, a while later. His younger sister actually starved to death, oh, my God. and his entire life, he, he carried that with him, always feeling that there was something more he could have done to save her, and that's why he wrote the book and as kind of an apology to her, uh, and to show, you know, the rest of Japan and the world, you know, really what they had to go through at that time in their lives. And that's why he was so protective of that movie being made and why it's that much more important that Ghibli was the ones to bring that story to the rest of us.
1: Part of me really wants to read that book, but part of me is like, I, I I can't. (laughs) I just, it would destroy me. I just, especially knowing that it had happened, no, I, I don't think I could.
0: Mm-hmm. So it, that's why I chose this movie because this is the movie that really showed me, as, as a young adult myself at the time, the depth that animation can bring to a story. Because, like I said, prior to that, it was all, you know, Disney movies, comedy, great action stuff. But nothing that really brought home the drama that I felt the first time watching Grave of the Fireflies.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. All right. Let's
1: turn it around to a little bit happier now. (laughs) And that's to the film that I chose, which is Spirit of Way. Now, Miyazaki had made a lot of films and for different age groups. But he never made one for the 10-year-old girl age group. And every year he had friends then, or his daughter's friends, would stay with them during the summer at their vacation home. And from that, what he decided is he'd like to make a film for them, for that age group. And he chose one of his friend's daughters as the role model for this, the main character, Chihiro. It's funny because there was a quote actually in some of the special um, on the the DVDs that said that if you've ever made it within 10 feet of Miyazaki you're in one of his animated films because he uses he bases a lot of his characters on people that he's met and known and so that's based on a little girl that used to hang around with his daughter and it's this sullen 10 year old and she is forced to move with her parents and on the way to the new home, the father gets lost and takes a shortcut through the woods, which leads to a tunnel. And they decide to go and explore it and see where it leads to. And they go through this tunnel. And of course, it's this quote unquote magical kind of tunnel thing. And it leads to an abandoned fair area. Uh, this is actually based on the Edo Tokyo Open Air Architectural Museum, which is located close to Studio Ghibli. And so they, they kind of wander through this this empty fairground there's different huts and buildings around and whatnot and there's actually one stall that has food in it and so the parents go and sit down and basically proceed to stuff themselves chihiro kind of is trying to get them to head back she can sense that something's wrong but when they won't listen to her she just wanders off and she finds this massive bathhouse and it's quite extravagant and as she's getting close as she's going past the the bridge, a young boy, Haku, tries to, uh, he spots her and he tries to convince her quite forcibly that she has to leave the grounds before darkness falls. So she takes off running for her parents, but as she's getting closer to them, she begins to see spirits popping up at the stalls. And when she actually gets to her parents, they've been transformed into pigs. So now she's, wigging out justifiably and it's haku who helps her because she's actually beginning to fade away as well and he gives her some food to eat so that she can become a part of that world and explains to her that she will need to get a job at the bathhouse so that the witch who runs the bathhouse yubaba can't harm her and nobody else will be able to harm her as well so from there you get jihiro going into the bathhouse and a large portion of the story from that point is in the bathhouse, this extravagant bathhouse. And you have this wealth of different spirits and different creatures and things like that, that are in there. You have the old Kamaji, the, 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 the spider, spider ghost thing (laughs) who's there mixing all the waters and different things. And you also have different people who, Though they don't look like spirits, they're not normal people either who work there to keep everything running and whatnot. And you have this sense of wonder going on here that you have no idea what's going to be happening. And again, it's that sense of magic which you get in Miyazaki films which really for lack of a better term, get you kind of on the edge of your seat wondering, okay, what's going to be happening to this child here? Because there's things going on here that are, I mean, the freaking, the <laughs> turned coal into these cute as hell little creatures <laughs> <laughs> that steal shoes. So, I mean, when you you're seeing something like that, you know that the rest of the film is going to be just as magical too. Yeah,
0: everywhere you look, Oh. there's something you've never seen before yeah <laughs> and every every character in the background is so well realized like you you can look at it and know that's a character that's not just you know a random shape taking up place you know in the background like that every single bit of it lends itself to the whole and it's one of those things where it's very much in style with a lot of the stuff we've seen from Miyazaki and specifically his fantasy And it's so interesting that whenever you, at least for me, whenever I think of, you know, Japanese folklore and Japanese fantasy, anything I envision is in that Miyazaki style, which is interesting because that's largely at odds with the traditional Japanese interpretations of a lot of these things but Miyazaki brings in a lot of elements of, you know, Chinese uh, folklore and Indian and a lot of things that he melds together into this very unique style of his own that despite the fact that it's very different from pretty much anything else you'll see has basically become the interpretation in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Well,
1: the thing, too, is that so many so much of his characters it 's not just that they 're so well realized but there 's so much to them without them having to be loud and brash and in your face it 's funny because when you look to Disney, who are the ones that put out the North American versions of their films, I mean you look to disney Disney, most of the characters are loud and out there i mean jeez they're you don't have characters but that, but not characters yeah you don't have to look any further than the freaking you know genie in aladdin kind of thing to, to, that's what so many of the characters are they're 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 this larger than life kind of thing and yet before the character of no face becomes the same kind of thing even before then though Just when you see him on the bridge and you see him here and there and the little bit of interactions he has with Chihiro, he already has this massive personality, this this essence about him kind of thing. And then from there, once he kind of goes crazy and, and transforms, then, yeah, it is. But then it's when he returns back to his normal self after, once she's helped heal him, that... Again, he has that presence, and it's such a quiet character. So at this point here, she has gone and spoken to Yubaba, who is the witch who runs the bathhouse, and she's gotten a job from her. As part of the contract, Yubaba steals her name, and she gives her a new name, Sen. And from that moment on, if without any other prompting, Shihiro would forget who she is and become Sen. And it's a curse that allows Yubaba to control anybody who works for her. So it's actually Haku who helps her remember who she is. But also at the beginning of the film when is in the back of the car. She has a bouquet of flowers that was a going away gift by a friend of hers. And on it, there was a card and her name Chihiro is on the card so she can remember what her name is. And so again, here's this, this tension that's built where she knows that if she doesn't do something and do it soon, not only will she forget who she is, but her parents will remain pigs as well. So she has to not just save herself, but, save her parents as well and you have
0: eventually the pigs will become dinner yeah that's that's on its way
1: (laughs) and haku explains this to her because he can't remember who he used to be and you get this these moments between those two characters where they've met each other before but they're not quite sure where and The payoff for that is really impressive, but he's really trying to help her because he has forgotten who he is, and it's because of this curse that's on her – or on him, I should say, which is the same as what she has.
0: Yeah, and this is where we get into the metaphor that the entire film – like as Miyazaki said, he wanted to make it for a very specific age range of girls, and like many of his films, it's a – journey of self-discovery and the metaphor isn't even buried very deep here. She literally has to learn who she is to progress and and go back into the world. And there's another and there's a number of other themes here as well, but uh, that being the central motivating factor of it. I I thought it was very well executed.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those films where you can sum up the film in literally a couple of lines. And it's this sullen little spoiled girl who is forced to grow up very fast and become responsible. And to, I mean, to the point of learning manners, <laughs> like a whole, you, you <laughs> see where the worker who is in charge of her Lynn, who I love, especially the, the woman who does the voice acting for Lynn, the North American one. I love her voice. She was actually the voice of one of the female, the female lead in Hercules. I just absolutely adore her mm-hmm. voice. But anyways, um, is like telling her, like, use your manners. Say thank you to you, Baba, and different things like that. So this child has to learn manners and learn all this stuff as she's getting through this in order to not just save herself, but also to save Haku and also to save her parents. Again, it's it's a simple theme, but done so extravagantly, especially when you weave in the side stories that are going along. You have this massive stink spirit. And I love how Lasseter talked about it during some of the, the the extra features saying, if films could smell, (laughs) you would be able, you would know what they're going through because the animation is so phenomenal. When you're looking at the characters that are dealing with this spirit. And this was based actually on an experience that Miyazaki had where he helped clean a river. And they actually had to pull a bicycle that was embedded in the (laughs) ground in the river. And so they tied a rope to it and they did exactly what is in this movie when they saved this stink spirit, which turns out to be a river spirit that's just been polluted. So if you read too much into it, it might sound a little too politically correct, kind of trying to preach about the polluted rivers, but... I don't take it as such. I just take it as this was an experience that he had and it fits in with the theme of the bathhouse and the spirit coming to cleanse itself essentially kind of thing. And then it also offers this storytelling element where in gratitude, it gives Sen a dumpling and it's that dumpling which she uses on two other people to heal them as well one being no face which she allows into the bathhouse not realizing that it's going to wreak havoc which it it does and it's when she gives it part of the dumpling and then um, basically chases her out of the, the bathhouse it kind of returns back to normal and the other one happens to be Haku who has gone off to Yubaba's twin sister To Zenibas, Zenibas? I can't remember how they pronounce it, Zenibas, I would think. Um, Anyways, she becomes Granny. To her place to steal (laughs) a golden seal. And he's cursed. And so Sen gives him the other part of the dumpling, makes him basically throw up the seal. And attached to the seal is a little sprite, which you later find out, which he crushes and you later find out that that was actually the curse which Yubaba held on Haku. And I loved the little breaking the spell thing where they mm-hmm. do it with their fingers and they they chop it. If you watch there's on the extras for the DVD there's a a long feature that was done in Japan that talked about everything involved in this movie from the doing the the storyboarding the the the, the, the all of the uh, the art To the voice acting and when they got to the voice acting for that, they were trying to explain to the kid actors what this meant because it's just a little kid's folklore where you're breaking a curse kind of thing. But the kids there, it was before their time. They had never heard of it either.
0: (laughs) And it's funny, like one of my favorite little bits in the entire movie is when the mouse reenacts it. Right. Yes, <laughs> and the, and the little soot sprite, you know, does does the breaking of the spell. Like it's just that that little bit of fun, that little bit of whimsy, that makes these movies what they are. Well,
1: that's something that Lassiter was saying, too, when they were doing the English translation. They were all looking at each other what does that mean? What are they doing? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> and they had to find out what it is. And it's just a kid's custom. Basically, how did they say it? It's like getting rid of the cooties, essentially, is what it is. <laughs> so it is by virtue of her love for Haku that she is able to break the spell that Yababa has on it. Now, at this point, Sen has taken off to uh, Zenima's home by way of a train that is a one-way trip kind of thing, and she's going with a little posse, which I there's, watch the show. It's just it's hard to explain. You know, you tell people traveling with a rat and a fly, they're not going to get it. <laughs> but anyway, so she goes to Granny, and she finds out a lot more information there, And then also Haku, who is now healed up, goes over and and meets her there. And it's on their journey back where he remembers who he is, remembers his name. And he's actually the Kohaku River Spirit. And by remembering that, it releases Yababa's grasp on him. And you have this wonderful scene where he's in his dragon form And Sen Chihiro is on his back riding. And as he remembers, he just changes into this boy and they're just kind of floating down. Nobody's worried that they're going to go curse flat. He's a spirit. It's all cool. I was a little worried. (laughs) Maybe the first time I was watching. was like, you may want to change. (laughs) But it was just a wonderful scene, especially when you'd seen the previous scene where he was fighting off the paper. Birds, the, the 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 origami birds that were attacking and slicing him to bits, kind of thing. It was really a powerful
0: scene. Yeah, and again, that goes back into the what you were talking about, how the the stink god represented a lot of uh, pollution and and stuff. But I think it goes beyond that. And one of the things that Miyazaki was trying to do with this film was basically remind the japanese people of you know their culture and their heritage with all these all these spirits and stuff that that is a part of their cultural heritage going back hundreds of years and we see that represented specifically in kohaku in the fact that the reason he's here is the river that he used to be isn't there anymore it was they built buildings on top of it so that that's why he came to yababa in the first place is you know he he wasn 't himself anymore, just like uh, Chihiro was, and I, that that was the uh, really the other theme that Miyazaki was trying to go with here is just reminding japan like yes it 's great to to move forward, but here 's a little reminder of of the things you 're leaving behind yeah, and it 's powerful at that, so
1: at this point now they are basically heading back to confront Yubaba, who has a test for Sen in order to then set her free, and she does. And then from there, they're basically told, leave, don't ever look back. It's it's the kind of typical wrap-up to the movie that's needed, but in no way disappointing whatsoever. It is a movie that, again, when you boil it down to the little bit that it is, it's fairly easy just to give it a couple of lines to explain what it is, but there's so much between the lines. And it's actually a movie as well that Miyazaki had said he had to trim so much from because it was over three hours long originally when they were, when he was sport, storyboarding it out and whatnot. So when it came time to actually do it, he had to trim so much of it down because it was simply too long. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly curious what it is that we missed.
0: Mm-hmm. As I'm sure we'll mention a little bit, uh, Miyazaki has announced his retirement many Again. times throughout <laughs> the years. And one of those times was after Princess Mononoke. And he's like, you know, I'm I'm going to step away. And then he got the idea for Spirited Away. And his vision for this film was so strong, it drew him out of retirement. The way that they're talking,
1: he's been talking now, though, it's basically been that that is it. The man's in his 70s now and has said that he doesn't want to do another film because he's afraid that basically he could die before it's done. And so he looks at it differently now. He's actually been working on manga again. Have you seen that thing? It, it freaking is amazing. <laughs> I know. I know. So I actually think that he might, he might actually stay retired. It's funny because, again, if you watch that feature on the DVD, it shows him. Now, he was in his 60s when he did this working and staying at the studio till two in the morning some nights because he did a ton of the artwork as well and like he had his first in line that he passed off a lot of work to which he didn't used to do quite as pass off quite as much before when he was younger but he was getting older so he passed off a lot of work to this man i can't remember his name and it wasn't his son it wasn't uh Gore, but mm-hmm. uh but anyways he he still he'd be there till two in the morning working and so this is not like your typical direct i don't want to say typical director but you know what i mean like a uh, he, his hands are in everything yeah. putting his heart and soul into every every panel kind of thing so i can appreciate that in his 70s yeah he probably
0: wants to stay retired now <laughs> And there's also the interesting story about his relationship with his son, Goro. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Tales from Earthsea came out in 2006, that was Goro Miyazaki's directorial debut. And that's a movie that his father had been trying to get made for years. And the the writer of the novels had always turned him down because she had a certain preconception as to what animation was. Like she she thought of cartoons until she saw Spirited Away. And that's what changed her mind of, okay, you know, these guys could do my books justice. So she was like, oh, okay, you guys can do my movie. Well, unfortunately at the time, uh, Hayao Miyazaki was deep into production on Howl's Moving Castle. So Ghibli gave the the reins to his son, Goro, who had obviously had worked before. But this was his directorial debut. And his father hated it yeah, the movie <laughs> because <times. laughs> on one hand, this was a project he himself was very passionate about. But on the other hand, he didn't feel that Goro himself was quite ready for that responsibility. So he actually didn't talk to his son the entire time the movie was in production. And of course, you know, afterwards, you know, they, they obviously made up. So when uh, From Up on Poppy Hill came out a couple years ago, it just came out in America very recently. That, you know, was a much better film like you know from the director's point of view well
1: he and, actually left because or left studio ghibli and he wasn't going to make any more movies mm-hmm. after that and then he decided to come back for poppy hill which is what's well, not really surprising considering that the legacy that his father is leaving behind but i mean it it tanked that bad that yeah. he, he became a landscaper
0: <laughs> he went off and yeah. became a landscaper so so there's now the, this great human story of you know this father who you know is, is approving of his son's work and is basically leaving the torch in his hands now yeah so that's again why i think that he's probably gonna stay retired
1: mm-hmm. anyways did you actually watch a lot of the features on the the Spirit way dvd
0: no, I have an old DVD okay. that basically has a trailer. Okay,
1: yeah, this one has some phenomenal features because, of course, Disney putting it out, they wanted to put their spin as well on everything that they did for the the North American English release, and you can really tell when you listen to it the quality that went into it, how much they cared about the story. It's uh, they they got John Lasseter from Pixar. Disney approached him to work specifically on this. And then they wound up getting a ton of phenomenal talent, voice acting talent, including of course Rattzenberg, who has to be in it. <laughs> may as well be a Pixar film and uh but yeah, like you can see how much they went through, and they didn't that was the deal again. do you're not changing or cutting anything that's um basically, Nausicaa had been butchered when they it was. Uh, sent out to foreign markets. And so they had decided they would never do that again. So that's why the no cuts thing that they have. And so when they were doing the voice acting, they had to make sure that they had everything right. And it was harder because they had to make sure that they matched all of the lip movements as well. So it made it a lot tougher for for the voice actors. So that was... Mm -hmm superbly interesting but on top of that even better was again there was a feature i believe it must have been about an hour long and it was like a special that would have aired in japan that showed the development cycle for spirited away and all the work that they were doing for the um all the key frames miyazaki working with his staff explaining different concepts of how he wanted it to look comparing it to different animals and things like that which was again very very cool the, the, to the point of the, the staff going to a vet clinic to examine animals because he kept telling them what he thought that the scene would look like when Sen is putting that dumpling into Haku's mouth when he's a dragon and he's flailing about. (laughs) And he said it's like opening a dog's mouth and putting something in kind of thing. And none of them had had a dog. So they went with cameras to the vet clinic and there was this gorgeous retriever there. And so they basically filmed somebody putting something in its mouth, opening its mouth and putting something in kind of thing. And then it showed again him working incredibly late the, the whole staff was insanely dedicated, and then it, once the keyframes were done, then it branched off to the voice acting, the sound effects, and the score, all of which was, again, incredible to watch. It's, if if you're listening to this and you have even ever considered it, I strongly recommend buy the DVD or the Blu-ray and make sure that it has those features on it because it was just a blast to watch.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. We're probably not going to be talking about anime overall on this show quite as regularly as we have in the last couple episodes. But I think if we can do one thing here, it's to even still kind of break some of those preconceived notions people have out there. As it doesn't, especially for the two of us, it doesn't matter what the medium is. It's all about the quality of the story and how it's presented to the audience within the realm of its particular medium and. It's one of those things where what was what was the last non-Japanese hand-drawn animation movie you saw? Oh, Jesus, put me on the spot here. Exactly, because it, especially here in America, it's just a thing that's not done anymore.
1: You know what's funny? Because now that you say that, and I'm not going to be able to remember what it was we watched, but I do remember not that long ago we did watch something, and it was a North American film, and it was one of those wow this isn't 3d like this is and it's it's funny because we've gone so long with 3d now that it's no longer the cool thing which it was for the longest time now it's just the standard so now when you see a traditionally animated show it sticks out and it's so it's so beautiful and it's like wow this is a craft and art form that we can't lose this it, mm-hmm. we can't
0: See, it's interesting because something I didn't know before we started researching this episode was that there was no Academy Award for Best Animated Feature prior to 2001. I mean, I guess because there weren't really enough movies worthy of it, I would guess. But uh, once Toy Story and all that stuff started becoming more and more popular and there was actual quality output, in 2001, they actually started up an award for Best Animated Feature and uh, Shrek won it the first time around. But Spirited Away won in 2003. And it was the first foreign film, of course, to to win. And in the history of the award since, it's still the only traditionally animated movie to win that award. Hmm.
1: Well, it is, again, it is an art form that, unfortunately, it's it's more expensive and more tedious, but we can't lose that. And it's great that Ghibli is still continuing with that, even though that they've gone digital in a lot of the ways that they do it. It's they still maintain at least the look of those hand-drawn cells and it mm. shows it makes a huge difference in their work. Yeah. Okay. That is going to wrap up the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure to stop by popcornronan.com for the show notes. Leave us your comments on some of your favorite Miyazaki or Studio Ghibli films. And, uh, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with some, some actual real life films to talk about so with that again make sure to stop by the site let us know what you think you can find us on itunes as well as on stitcher leave us some comments and we'll talk to you soon
0: Movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronan.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their Comic Book Informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking
1: up his CDs.